This morning, we're going to be uh, continuing in our series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. We began the Sermon on the Mount last week. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I do want to just quickly remind you that right now we are collecting Easter eggs because we're going to be having a, a, just a, you know, kind of a small Easter egg hunt after Easter service on the 17th, which is in three weeks. And so we're just asking everybody to bring uh, a dozen or more uh, eggs that are already filled with candy. So bring a dozen or more eggs, fill them with candy, and there's a donation box downstairs uh, in the basement, and you can drop them off there. Uh, just we're hoping if we can all work together, then we can collect plenty, and then we'll be uh, ready for that egg hunt. So uh, you can bring those at any time over the next three weeks. That'd be a tremendous uh, help. Uh, as you're uh, finding your way to Matthew 5, 13 and 16, um, I wanted to, uh, to, to share with you a story uh, that I read earlier this week um, about Adoniram Judson. So Adoniram Judson uh, was a missionary to India, and uh, by all accounts, he was one of those people, maybe you've, you've met one of those people before, or you, you've spent time around one of those people that just reminds you of Jesus. You know, it's just, there's something about them that just exudes Christ-likeness. And like when you spend time around them, you just find yourself wanting to draw closer to God, wanting to know God more just by being around that person. <clears throat> by all accounts, Adoniram Judson was one of those people. Um, and so he, was, he gave his life to make Christ known among peoples who had never heard the gospel before in India. And one time upon a return visit to America, as he got off the ship, there was a young boy who was playing at the wharf and immediately was struck just by the very presence of Adoniram Judson. And later on in life, this young boy reflected that he said, Never before had I seen such a light on any human face. And when the boy saw Judson, he ran to find his minister to go ask his minister who this man was. And he, the, the boy and his minister went to find Judson. And the minister himself got so engrossed in conversation with Judson that he completely forgot about the young boy that was standing by his side. And many years later, that young boy became the famous preacher Henry Clay Trumbull. And Trumbull served as a chaplain in the Union Army and as a faithful preacher for decades afterwards. And his encounter as a young man with Adoniram Judson had such a powerful effect on him that later on in life when he wrote his memoirs, he entitled one of the chapters, What a Boy Saw in the Face of Adoniram Judson. Henry Clay Trumbull could never get away from the influence of Judson's countenance because he saw Christ exuding from him. The, the life of a person who has been transformed by the gospel can have an enormous impact on those around them. We began our series in the Sermon on the Mount last week. And the Sermon on the Mount, we said last week, that Doug told us last week, the Sermon on the Mount describes the true people of the true King. In other words, if you want to know what a disciple of Jesus is supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what a disciple of Jesus is supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12. And the Beatitudes describe the character of a true disciple. A true disciple is poor in spirit. A true disciple is meek, pure in heart, merciful, a peacemaker, etc. And in the rest of the sermon, Jesus unpacked the conduct of a true disciple. 
So the Beatitudes are like an introduction to the rest of the sermon. They describe the heart of a true disciple, and the primary point of verses 13 to 16 is that a transformed heart will lead to a transformed life. If you embody the characteristics described in verses 1 to 12, it will be evident in your life. Your conduct and your conversation will be salt and light to a dying and dark world. So let's read Matthew 5, 13 to 16. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Here's what God's Word says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I pray now that you would help me to accurately teach your word this morning. Pray that you would fill me right now. Holy Spirit, help me to get out of the way. And I pray that, God, you would work through me in my weakness. And I pray that you would all, give all of us ears to hear so that you can shape and mold us and, and sanctify us as your people this morning. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the main point of the sermon this morning is that true disciples glorify God by pointing people to Jesus through transformed lives and lips. True disciples glorify God by pointing people to Jesus through transformed lives and lips. Jesus uses two illustrations to describe how this happens. And those two illustrations are going to make up our two points this morning. So our two points, first point is true disciples are salt to a dying world. And the second point is that true disciples are light to a dark world. True disciples are salt to a dying world. So on the heels of describing the character of a true disciple in the Beatitudes, Jesus says to anyone who is his disciple, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And salt was an extremely valuable commodity in the ancient world with many uses. We don't typically think of salt as valuable today because we have an abundance of it and it's just that thing that sits on the table and you put it on your chicken or on your rice or whatever, right? But salt was extremely valuable in the ancient world. It was obviously used to flavor food. It helped food taste a lot better. Uh, it was also used as a purifying agent to disinfect wounds in the ancient world. Uh, it doesn't feel very good, but it's good for you. Have you ever heard the term rubbing salt in the wound? Right? That's what you do because it makes the wound actually hurt worse. But it actually does purify the wound. But most importantly, salt was used as a preserving agent to prevent meat from rotting and decaying. I mean, before the age of the refrigerator, salt was the primary way that meat could be preserved. So salt literally saved lives and kept entire populations from starving. And because of this, it was extremely valuable. It was even used as currency around the world in trading. And uh, it was, uh, Roman soldiers oftentimes were actually paid in salt. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, he's, not even, he's not worth his salt? That's where that phrase actually comes from, because salt was actually used as wages in many places in the ancient world. 
It was so important that wars were actually fought over salt, and entire economies were based on it. So when Jesus says to Christians, you are the salt of the earth, he is, I think, first of all saying that our lives should stand out in stark contrast to the world. If you have the character of a true disciple as described in the Beatitudes, it will be evident. Your life will bring a distinct flavor to the world. It will do good in the world. It will bring value in the world. Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness rather than groping for pleasure in the, in the fleeting pleasures of sin will stand out. Someone who is merciful and forgiving instead of taking revenge will be distinct. Not only does the life of a true disciple stand out, but in a sense our lives should be like a preserving agent in a dying and decaying world. Scripture explains that the world is in bondage to corruption. When sin entered the world, death entered in, and all of creation is under this curse of corruption. And the godly lives of Christians who embody the beatitude helps to hold the world from moral decay to some extent. This doesn't mean that we can stop the world from corruption, but rather that the influence of the gospel can and should have a positive effect and influence in the world around us. Sinclair Ferguson is a pastor and an author, and he says this. He says, Christians whose lives exhibit the qualities of the blessed, that is the Beatitudes, will have a preserving impact on a society that, if left to itself, will rot and deteriorate. Without the influence of the gospel, society will suffer moral decay and become putrid. How true has this been? You know, sadly, as the church has become more like the world, the church has become less and less effective in society. Oftentimes we look at the moral decay around us and we shake our heads at all the wickedness out there, but we ought to start by taking a look at ourselves first. Much of the blame lies at the feet of the church as we've compromised and cozied up with the world rather than striving to be as different from the ways of the world as possible. It's no wonder that our culture is experiencing moral rot. Salt is needed because the world is dying and decaying, but if our Christianity is also dying and decaying, it won't be any good. The church does not make a difference in the world or attract the world to Jesus by becoming like the world. You know, many churches are cooler and they remove some of the more offensive aspects of God's word that they can attract more people to Christ. But the, the church's usefulness actually lies in our uniqueness. Our usefulness lies in our uniqueness. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England in, the, in the, uh, the last century, and he said the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Our ambition should be to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can. We should strive to flee from sin as fast as we can, to be as different from the world around us as we possibly can. So if if the question you are asking yourself is, how close can I get to sin without actually crossing the line? You're asking the wrong question. You're not thinking like a Christian. 
One who hungers and thirsts for righteousness asks the question, how far and how fast can I distance myself from the corrupting influence of sin? How can I get away from it? Now, this is not to say that we should go live in a monastery and set ourselves, separate ourselves from society. That was the mistake of the church in the, in the third and fourth centuries. Because salt is useless if it's not in contact with the meat, okay? It can't preserve anything if it's not in contact with the meat. We must be in the world, but not of the world. True disciples must influence the world, not the other way around. I'll just ask you, are you influencing the world around you, or is the world influencing you? What's happening in your life? A true disciple of Jesus endeavors to live as much like Jesus as he or she can as a witness before a watching world. So, is your life different from the world around you? Do you speak differently than the world? Do you look at different things than the world? Do you listen to different things than the world? Do you spend your time and your money on different things than the world? Now, I've talked to people before who've told me that they've worked at a, at a certain place, a certain job for a year or more, and that their coworkers don't even know that they're a Christian. This hardly seems possible if one has the character described in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes will be apparent in the life of a true disciple. You, it, you can't hide them. We won't display them perfectly, of course, but they will be consistently present in increasing measure as we mature in Christ. You know, one often overlooked area of our lives where this all applies is in our homes. Parents, are you being salt and light in your home? Do your kids observe you hungering and thirsting for righteousness in prayer and regular scripture reading? I remember seeing my dad read the Bible early in the mornings, just a consistent thing he did every morning. He'd have his Bible out and his coffee, and when I'd come up, he'd be, when I'd wake up, he'd be doing that in his study or in his big lounge chair. And that had a lasting impact on me. It, cre- it put the seeds in my heart of a love for the Word of God just by watching him do it. Do, do your kids see you being a peacemaker when arguments arise, or do they witness you pouring gasoline on arguments with your spouse, trying to get the last word in? Do they see you being pure in heart in the language that you use or the attitude that you carry yourself with in the home? All of these things will have a profound impact on them. No one will influence your children for the gospel one way or the other more than parents. No one. Not the pastor at the church, not the youth pastor, not their teachers. It's got nothing. You, parent, are going to have a greater influence on your child's life for the sake of the gospel than anyone else. For good, for better, or for worse. One amazing example I read about is the story of John Newton's mother, Now, some of you may know the story that God famously saved John Newton out of a life of sin in in the slave trade. Uh, He went on to become a faithful minister, and he wrote some incredible hymns, including uh, Amazing Grace, probably the greatest known hymn ever written. But what most don't know about John Newton's life is the influence of his mother. His mother, Elizabeth, died when he was just seven years old. She was sick with tuberculosis most of his life, so she was very, very ill and bedridden much of the time. But she was a godly woman who wanted more than anything for her son to know and love Jesus. John was her only child. 
She spent most of her effort teaching John as a young boy from the Scriptures. By the time he was four years old, Newton could read, and he knew all of the answers to the Assembly's Shorter Catechism and several other catechisms. He could recite them by heart. After his mother died at the age of seven, Newton was raised by his father, father, who he later described as very harsh, and his stepmother, who was neglectful. And his father actually sent him off to work at sea at the age of 11. And embittered by all of this, Newton became hardened in sin and he participated in in all sorts of sin and debauchery, including the slave trade. But those seeds sown by his mother took effect later on in his life. God graciously saved Newton out of a life of sin and slave trading and he pointed back to the influence of his mother as a big reason why. He could never shake her godly example and her faithfulness in teaching him the Word of God. He, he wrote uh, later on he, in, in one of his uh, uh, journals, he wrote, My dear mother often commended me with many prayers and tears to God, and I doubt not, but I reap the fruits of these prayers to this very hour. This, this testimony, I think, is first and foremost an encouragement to parents. God is able to use our feeble efforts, to work through our feeble efforts to save our children. So don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe you have adult children and they've strayed from the Lord and they're not walking with the Lord right now. Don't stop praying for them. Maybe you have young children and they're such depraved little human beings that you wonder how in the world God could ever save them, like my three kids. Don't give up. Don't stop praying for them. It's also an important reminder of the responsibility we have to disciple our children, to be salt and light in our home. Church members, you are aware that this is in our church covenant, right? We've promised to do this. Let me, let me read you a portion of our, of our membership covenant that we all signed and that we've made together to hold one another accountable to. It reads this. It says, We also engage to maintain family and secret personal devotions. Are you doing that, husbands? Are you leading your family spiritually? It goes on to say, to seek the salvation of our kindred and our acquaintances. Are you sharing the gospel with your children? Are you sharing the gospel with your extended family? To educate our children in the Christian faith and to support the efforts of the church to prepare the next generations to put their confidence in God. This isn't just a suggestion. This is a promise we've made to one another and it's a command in Scripture. So let, like, Man, don't underestimate the impact you can have in the lives of your children by your example and by your verbal witness, both fathers and mothers. God has given us an awesome privilege. So let me urge you to take this seriously. As followers of Jesus, our lives should stand out like salt because we've been changed from the inside out. It should stand out at home. They should stand out in the workplace. They should stand out in our neighborhood. They should stand out when we're at the grocery store, wherever we are. Our lives should stand out. And Jesus gives a warning, too, at the end of verse 13. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He says, it's no longer good for anything. It's not useful for the kingdom. It may as well be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So if you are living like the world, then like unsalty salt, you are in danger of being thrown out. And by the way, it's okay to admit if you are there this morning, if that's you. I came to that place when I was 24 years old. I realized 
that I was no different from the world. I had been sitting under the teaching of the Bible for 24 years, but a veil remained over my eyes. I assented to the gospel intellectually. I I, I said I believed it up here, but the gospel had never made its way from my head into my heart. There are millions of professing Christians doing the same thing. There are some of you sitting in this room who, if you were honest with yourself right now, you know that you resemble the world far more than you resemble Christ. You are not influencing the world. The world is influencing you. And while only God knows the true condition of your heart, the evidence of your life suggests that you are in danger of being thrown out like salt that has lost its saltiness. Now, I want to be clear, this does not mean that a true disciple, a born-again Christian, can lose their salvation. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, Christians are not challenged to become salty, but to stay salty. So if your life looks no different from the world around you, it's quite possible that you were never truly a Christian in the first place. This doesn't need to lead you to despair, though, because the answer isn't to try harder. God is merciful and gracious, and you can call out to Him today to save you. Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners who can't measure up. He bore the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin. And three days later, He emerged from the grave, defeating death, and He freely invites sinners like us to turn away from our sin and to believe this gospel and to be saved. And when you do that, when you call upon Christ to save you, He will save you and you will be born again. He will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And you will begin to to project the Beatitudes from within, out of your life. Your life will begin to bear fruit like you were intended to do as a Christian. The gospel is not that we must conform to God's law outwardly. We can't. You can't conform to God's law. We're going to read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's going to climax. Chapter 5 is going to climax in verse 48, where Jesus is going to say, you must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why is he saying that? Is he saying that because he thinks we can actually attain it? No. The whole point is to drive the nail into the coffin of our self-righteousness and self-confidence and to realize we are utterly helpless, apart from God's grace. So if you're here this morning and you know you're living like the world and you know and God knows he can see your heart, he can see your motives, you can put on a show for me, you can put on a show for your friends, but I'm begging you to stop. Stop putting on a show. You Don't put on a show. You're going to stand before God one day. You might stand before him tonight and what will you say? What will you say? I had a good reputation. It doesn't matter if you're not born again. If you know that you're not saved, if you know you're not living like God intends you to live, call out to Him to save you, and He will. He's merciful. But don't play games. He's also just and holy. And you're going to answer for your sin. Either you will pay for your sin, or Christ will pay for it on the cross. Please, please don't play games, guys. Please don't neglect God's free gift of salvation. I know there are people sitting in this room who are like I used to be. And God, I was just thinking this morning, I was was walking around here praying before the service this morning, and and thinking about how I tried to run from God. I tried everything I could to get away from His call in my life, but He wouldn't let me go. In Psalm 32, David prays, he says, God, your hand was heavy upon me. 
That's how he describes his life before God brought him to his knees and he repented. And I'm so thankful for God's good, heavy hand. He made me miserable until I repented, and I'm so glad he did. And I pray that God does that in your life if you're playing games with him. If you're not saved, I pray that God's heavy hand is upon you this week so that you will repent and believe the gospel and be set free because there's nothing better than being in the position of the blessed, of exhibiting these beatitudes in our life. And it has nothing to do with me. I'm not something impressive. Lord knows that I am a mess and a train wreck without God. Anything good in me is Christ in me. So look, if that's you and you're saying, what do I do? 13 years ago, what I did is I got on my knees and said, God, I don't want to be this person anymore. Please change me. Make me poor in spirit. Make me mourn over my sin. I confess my lack of righteousness and my utter dependence on you. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Change me. Guys, I want a church full of changed Christians. That's the only way this city's going to change. If we've got people who've been transformed from the inside out, who are exuding the Beatitudes in our lives. If you will come to God in sincerity like this, I assure you that He will do it. He's not hesitant to give out grace. He's not hesitant to give out grace. True disciples are salt to a dying world, and true disciples are light to a dark world. That's the second illustration that Jesus uses to teach us that we're to glorify God by pointing people to Jesus through transformed lives and lips. Salt has has a subtle influence, but light is more intrusive. Salt preserves, but light projects. We We weren't meant to be closet Christians. We're meant to display the glory of God through our words and our works. Jesus says in verse 14, he says, a city on a hill can't be hidden. You can't can't hide a city on a hill. It's going to stand out. Now, astute listeners might notice a possible contradiction at this point. You might be wondering, Pastor Jared, didn't Jesus say that he's the light of the world in John chapter 8? So how is it that we are the light of the world? It's true. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. But just like the moon lights up the world at nighttime because it reflects the light from the sun, Jesus himself is our source of light. The moon has no light in itself. It merely reflects the light given off by the sun. And yet, the moon truly does light up the night sky, doesn't it? By the light it gives off, we can see. In the same way, Jesus is reflected in the lives of his followers. Our lives are intended to be a display of his glory, lived out in our words and in our works. And verse 16 explains the purpose. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The world is in spiritual darkness because it neither sees nor knows God. Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes may not remain in darkness. Our default position Being born into sin is that we are in darkness. And Jesus came as the light, and now he said to us, Church, you are the light of the world. You will reflect my glory so that all will come to know me. As we reflect Jesus with our lives, the world is able to see and come to know God through that witness. 
Here's an important thing I want you guys to understand is that people cannot know God apart from the faithful witness of Christians. Jesus, in, in verse, uh, both verse 13 and verse 14, uses uh, the, an emphatic pronoun. So in, in Greek, uh, when he says, you are the light of the world, it literally reads, you yourselves are the light of the world, or you and you alone are the light of the world, is how we would actually literally read this statement. You and you alone are the light of the world. So if we don't bear witness to Christ, the world will remain in darkness. The reason God has saved you is so that you can display His glory for all to see. And I want you to notice carefully that the result of others seeing your good works is not that they will praise you, but that they will praise God. See what he says? He says that they may see your good works and give glory to God. They see your good works, you do the good works, God gets the glory. You do the good works, God gets the glory. Why? Because your good works have nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. It's God's light shining through you. Like, you don't walk into a dark room and flip on the light switch so that you can stare at the light bulb. You turn on the light so that you can see everything else in the room. Okay? God has not made us the light of the world to draw attention and praise to ourselves, but to Him. He didn't... didn't, Make us a light so that people can stare at us, but so that through our light, people can see him. Any light the world sees in us is Christ in us, not ourselves. And I'll tell you, that's good news for weak people like me and you, isn't it? Because the pressure isn't on us to perform. We aren't called to become salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Ephesians 5, 8 says this, it says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. So walk as children of light. Jesus is just calling us to be who we already are here. He's already changed us from the inside out. If anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So be who you are. Take the basket off of your head and start letting your light shine. How do you do that? Walk by the Spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Because you've been born again, you now have the desire and the ability to do what is pleasing to God. You aren't blindly following the desires of your flesh and the devil. You are able, by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body, like Romans 8, 12, and 13 says. You have that ability. You're no longer a slave to sin if you're a Christian. A true disciple who embodies the Beatitudes in verses 3 to 12, won't be able to hide it. Light does not have to try to shine. Its very nature is to shine. Christ will be evident in our works and with our words. Now, one of the best examples in my life of this is um, Joshua Harris, not the author, uh, different Joshua Harris. Um, Being around Joshua changed the trajectory of my life. I met Joshua about 13 years ago, and as I was sharing earlier, at that time, I claimed to be a Christian, but I wasn't salty. I resembled the world. I was entertained by what the world was entertained by. But Joshua was different. He couldn't help but exude Jesus with his life and his lips. He was really joyful, and he really cared about others. I remember he used to come into the shop I would work at, and he'd ask me how he could pray for me, and then he'd stop and pray for me right there, and, and, I, and I could tell he meant it. Like, he really cared. And he was so bold. He, didn't care. he talked about Jesus all the time. 
It was like you could just tell he was in love with Jesus and he just couldn't stop talking about all the great things that God had done in his life and he didn't care if people overheard him talking about Jesus. He didn't care. He would just talk about Jesus all the time and talk about the gospel. And he 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 took joy in serving others. He didn't use foul language. He didn't tell crude jokes. He was just different. There was just something different about him. And I could tell he knew God in a way that I didn't know God. And I found myself going, I want to know God like he does. He's got something that I don't have. and I want it. I want it. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of person God's calling us to be. That's what it looks like to be the salt of the earth and light in a dark world. We're to point others to Jesus through our transformed lives and lips. Are you that type of person? When other people are around you, do they want to know Jesus more because they've been around you? Because you spend so much time with Jesus. Like you're like a sponge that just soaks in the water of Jesus for so long that when you're wrung out at the end of the day, Jesus just pours out of you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.16, he said, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That's God's goal for your life if you're a Christian. Is that your goal for your life? Does your goal align with his? One of the ways that Christ will be evident in the life of a true disciple is that true disciples cannot help but share the good news about Jesus with others. When the, when the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 4, they said, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Sorry, guys. We can't help it. Cut our heads off if you want, but we can't help but speak about it. We, we know this is the truth. If Jesus is truly alive, and he is, and if we too have forgiveness of sins and eternal life by trusting in him, and we do, then we can't help but share this. When you are in love, you gush about the one that you're in love with because you want everyone to know. You want to share that joy. You want to make it Facebook official, right? It's the same for followers of Jesus. No one lights a lamp and then places it under a basket, Jesus says. Jesus has lit your life aflame, giving you His Holy Spirit so that you can bear witness to Him. If you are a Christian and you came here this morning confused about what your purpose in life is, you don't need to look any further. It's right here before our eyes in this text. Our primary purpose is to magnify Christ by living like Him and speaking of Him to everyone who will listen. Whether you are a Marine, whether you are a housemaid, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whether you are uh, an entrepreneur, whether you are a construction worker, it doesn't matter. That's our primary purpose in life if you're a follower of Jesus. And we've got an opportunity this Easter season to share the good news with people here in this city. We're surrounded by multitudes of people who are in darkness right now. And the only light of the world is Christians. Jesus said, you yourselves are the light of the world. The only way these people are going to come to know God, the only way these people will be saved is if we tell them the gospel. They will remain in darkness and ultimately perish in eternal darkness if we don't share it with them. And every person in this room, including me, has friends and co-workers and neighbors who are in darkness. So let's make Jesus known to them. Let's remove the basket that is over our light. 
And this morning, I want to give all of us the opportunity to apply this message right away. We have, we have invite cards for Easter service in bundles of three up here. And we're going to have an Easter service just to, uh, at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 17th, followed by an Easter egg hunt. It's not, not a big deal. We're not doing a helicopter egg drop or something like that. We just The main attraction is the gospel. The gospel is going to be preached. We want to serve our community. We're going to make Jesus known, proclaim Him. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a lot of fellowship. We'll have good food. But the primary attraction is Christ. And... What I'm going to call you guys to do, I'm asking every Christian in this room to commit, to commit to commit to invite three people to our Easter service taking place on April 17th. Now, obviously, inviting someone to church isn't a substitute for sharing the gospel with them. My hope is that you will also share the gospel with people when you invite them. But the point is that we want you to be intentional about being a light. And what I'm asking you to do is to commit to apply what God is calling us to do here in His Word by taking these invites and giving them out over the next couple of weeks. And so, I'm going to, in just a moment, I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up, and in just a moment, I'm going to ask you guys, uh, while the worship team's playing, to come up. If you're going to commit to invite three people, to engage three people, then by coming up and taking these three things, you are committing before everybody else in this room, I'm going to do this, hold me accountable, okay? If... If you don't think you're, you can do that or whatever, then don't come. Don't come. I much more respect integrity than I do putting on a show, okay? So, like, like if you're not going to use them, if you're not going to invite people, don't come up. That's okay. We're not judging you. It's okay, all right? But I want to urge you, if you're a Christian and if this is true of you, like, then, man, like, let's take advantage of this opportunity to be a light this Easter season. And then, not only do I want you to commit to invite three people, then I want you to pray for them. Commit to pray for the people that you invite. Start praying with them now. Praying that God will use our flimsy efforts at handing out these cards to, to people, to, that he'll use them to draw people to himself, and that he'll save people as a result of this outreach. Let's pray because, guys, we can't save anybody. Only God can save. We're powerless, but he works through weak witnesses like us. Church, you are the light of the world. This local church is a light in the middle of Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. What an opportunity we have. The most influential city in the most influential nation in the world at this point in history. And God has put us here as a light and as salt. We have the privilege of displaying the glory of Almighty God to a watching world through our lives and lips. We must not take that lightly. True disciples glorify God by pointing people to Jesus through transformed lives and lips.